So tonight we are going to study the sixth day. So we have covered the first five days of creation. And the first five days of creation are quite amazing. And now we start the sixth day, which of course is going to prove to be vital to you and me. So we'll begin in Genesis chapter 1, and uh, we'll begin uh, on verse number 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So today we get to learn about the, the living creatures, the animals that live on the earth, and humans. It's a very important subject. Uh, I, I appreciate the fact that as we studied this, we learned that God had a plan for the earth. He, he actually didn't fill the earth with all the animals, but he created a few, but enough variety to where they could multiply and fill the earth. And, uh, but he created a huge amount of variety. He also explains here that they were to reproduce themselves after their kind. And so each of these creatures kept their own distinctiveness. Uh, and they, while there's variations within the certain species and kinds, they, over time, so that God, who doesn't like everybody to be identical, uh, at the same time, he didn't make, uh, you know, you can tell the difference between a cat and a dog, and you can tell the difference between a, uh, a cow and uh, a horse. There's just going to be differences here. And you'll also notice here that as we talk about the animals in just a few moments, I'm going to share with you uh, about one of those animals in particular uh, called the giraffe. But uh, before I do that, I want to take you to what it says about man. Because uh, here in verse number 26, he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And, and he tells all that. And then he says in verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you see there, there's, a, there's a, almost a contradiction how in the world is it let us make God in our image 
and then it is God made us in his image. Very interesting, isn't it? Now, this is a good translation. These are correct English translations of what the Hebrew says. And if you look at the word God there, the word for God is the word Elohim. Now, that word is a word that has a plural at the end. You know how we add an S at the end of something to make more than one? The Hebrew would add I-M at the end of its words to create a plural, meaning more than one. And yet, when you see uh, God in here, in verse number 27, you have that same word Elohim, which is a plural word, but they use it with a singular verb. And so, and and a singular pronoun. So God created man in his own image. That's a singular masculine pronoun, even though there's the plural of God. And throughout the Bible, the word Elohim, when referring to God, is always treated as a singular unity. And yet, you have that verse in verse number six, which says, let us make man in our image. I do believe that this is uh, one of the great hints at the identity of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Because remember, God has always been Father, Eternal Father. He's always existed as uh, Eternal Father. But you cannot be a father unless you have a son. So in order to be an Eternal Father, you always have to have an Eternal Son. And in order to have an Eternal Son, He always has to have an Eternal Father. And so you have God who's always existed within himself as three and one at the same time, but he's a perfect unity. Now, you might say, well, that's hard to explain. And the answer to that is, yes, (laughs) of course it is. But if God was so easily explainable to everybody, then God would be less than we are. So we have uh, an amazing revelation in the Bible even early on that God is far beyond what we think of. Now, we know the Bible teaches very clearly that God is one. There's no gods before him. He's not three gods. He's only one God. But he does have within himself the perfect expression of love. When the Bible says God is love, then that is a statement about who God is. But how can he be love without expressing love? And if he's always been love, then he's always been the expression of love as well. And so he has the perfect relationship within himself. He loves his son and the Holy Spirit witnesses this love. And so it creates this unity, but at the same time, a plurality of persons. So that's why we sing holy, holy, holy. The angels sing it three times, holy, holy, holy. And there's a reason for that because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, We also see God's presence uh, throughout the Bible in many ways where both, all three, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are described as doing the same things. Uh, You do a good Bible study sometime on that and look it up, but it's amazing. So you have here God, and then he says, we want to, he's made all these things, okay? He's made all these animals, he's made the environment, He's created the creatures. He's created the, the, the stars and the sky, everything else. But now he's making the, the living animals. And now he says, we're going we're gonna to move up to creating somebody who's like us, like him. Now, what does it mean to be like God? 
I think what it, it means in one way is that you obviously have the reasoning ability to be able to, to comprehend God, at least as a rational being. You have the ability to feel, but you also have the ability to choose, and you have the ability to think uh, and uh, execute plans, and in lots of ways, be creative as well. I think that God gives us a certain amount of creativity. Uh, when he made man, he didn't make the world with everything made for him. He, the, the man had dominion over all the other creatures. He had organizational uh, gifts and abilities to organize as he saw fit. He gave jurisdiction of humans so that we could actually go and do as we would. And as we get to the story of the fall of Adam and Eve, we will learn that uh, that's going to be lost. But we should understand that God created them, male and female, and we learn that he made them and defined them and gave them a job to do. And their job was to rule. And that, that's good to remember, especially when we start talking about the serpent and uh, what, he had, uh, what he does when he creeps into the garden. Now, let's get to these animals for a second. Now, as we think about animals, we can think of many different creatures to talk about, the fascinating nature of animals. To, but you know, I don't know how anyone can believe that the animals were just uh, products of accident and randomness. I just don't see how that's possible. I'm going to show you an example uh, that I saw about uh, the giraffe. So as we think about the giraffe, uh, I want you to be thinking about the fact that the giraffe is uh, an amazing creature. Uh, the giraffe is uh, a 19-foot tall animal. That is huge. I mean, really, you think about it. I, I, when I go to the, have gone to zoos, if they have giraffes, I'm going to be the first in line to go look at a giraffe. They're just pretty amazing. If I was some uh, billionaire and had more money than cents, I'd probably want to have a pet giraffe. And I don't know how uh, it would be able to be housed and all that. I'm sure it would take a lot because they're not like normal animals, but certainly they are amazing. But uh, the giraffe is a creature that weighs about 2,500 pounds. So that is uh, heavier than some, a lot of vehicles. Uh, that's a pretty heavy animal. Also, it can run up to 36 miles per hour, which is uh, pretty remarkable. Uh, it eats 201 pounds of food on average per day, and it does this 16 to 20 hours a day. So it lives its life eating, and uh, much like cows, you know, just eating and enjoying the food it eats. But it has to eat a lot to get 200 pounds of salad uh, into its system. It sleeps only about 20 minutes a day. So that's not much sleep. So it, it has been uh, designed to uh, survive by sleeping only 20 minutes a day. Because if you think about its defense mechanisms, it, because it can run fast, because it's big, it probably can kick pretty well, but it has to stay alert. Uh, because if an animal like that uh, is in a situation where it's caught by surprise, it'd be vulnerable to a lion or something. So if you think about the, uh, it can also go without water for months like, like a camel can. 
at a time. So it can survive without water for extended periods of time. It's an amazing creature. So uh, if we look at the diagram of this uh, animal, it has special engineering. If you look at the, uh, the fact that its heart is two feet uh, in uh, length, a two-foot heart. And because the heart, it has to be that big because it has to have a, a huge blood pressure. This blood pressure is necessary to pump blood through the long neck up to that height where its brain is so it can keep its uh, uh, wits about it. Uh, so without that blood pressure, the animal would die or faint. I mean, we know what happens if you've ever watched the old wrestlers. They get them in the sleeper hole, right? That sleeper hole, what's it do? Cuts off the circulation to the brain and people just faint because you won't make it without blood to your brain. And same way with the giraffe. So the giraffe has this uh, amazing uh, heart and a pumping system. Now, a giraffe is most vulnerable, though, when it needs water. So when it goes to get water, it's, it's going to be uh, in a bad situation. But it's got another problem, that if because of this, the, the, the severe blood pressure, once that, that animal lowers its neck below its feet into the water, the pressure would destroy its, would kill the animal. The, the blood pressure, if you, you, to experiment, if you've ever been upside down, you know how much the blood pressure really goes to your head. You could just do this by uh, leaning over your bed and being upside down just a little bit, and you'll know you'll feel the pressure in your head. But the giraffe, when it does this, has a special set of valves in it that, uh, in its arteries and also in its veins, that regulates how much blood is going to be released. So it restricts the backflow of blood when it is lowering its head. But it has the opposite problem of having too much blood pressure when it's drinking water. When it raises its head back up, it has the opposite problem of not having enough blood because the blood pressure has been uh, uh, lowered. Then it will faint if it raises its head up. So how do you solve that problem? Well, it has a spongy organ right next to its brain. The spongy organ is able to squeeze out blood for it when there is low blood pressure. And that blood is able to help the brain survive when it is in transition. And the veins themselves help so that it restricts blood so that blood's not leaving the head when it goes up. So that is not by accident. There is no way. If any one of these systems was a failure, the giraffe could have never made it. So the fact is that this is part of a design that God Almighty had for the giraffe. And I think it's a, a pretty amazing design. Uh, and, and I don't know how anybody could say this is just something that evolved over time. I, I don't believe it's true at all. Now, uh, we talked about the Trinity earlier, but uh, the, 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 there's all kinds of references in the Bible for the Trinity as God, as us. Genesis 1.26, Genesis 3.22, Genesis 11.7, and Isaiah 6.8. Elohim is used in the Bible 680 times. Uh, it's 
It, but God is referred to as a singularity in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, and, and Exodus 20, verse 3. But in the New Testament, we learn of the plurality, especially when with regard to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. In Matthew 28, 19, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, John 14 through 17, and many other places. And of course, there's passages where God talks to himself and relates to himself. In Genesis 3.22, Genesis 11.7, Isaiah 6.8, Isaiah 48.12, and in 13 and in 16 of chapter 48 of Isaiah. Psalm 2, the whole psalm, second psalm, is basically a discussion of God within himself, to himself. And then uh, Psalm 45, 7, Psalm 110, 1, Matthew eleven twenty seven, John 8, 42, and John 17, 24. Now, I wanted to uh, show you some more tonight, and I thought it would, and, and I've been indebted to Chuck Missler. He's a good scholar who is in heaven now, but he, uh, I wanted to play an excerpt of a video that he put on the idea of order how God has put order in the universe and in particularly has ordered all things. And uh, you'll see in this 20-minute clip of this video how God has certainly shown great order. And so I'm going to play this video for you at this time. Now, I want to show you something. We always talk about randomness. The universe came out... Came out came about by randomness. That's the whole premise of evolution, right? How many of you have ever seen randomness? Besides at Las Vegas, okay? As you look at randomness, and the intent here was to assemble random bits. And by the way, that turns out to be very difficult to do. In a computer, you can't get randomness. They have pseudo-random number generators that generate a string of numbers that meet as many tests as they can conceive of for randomness. But they're still not really random. And, but I want you, I want you to look at these random, treat these as random numbers. Do you know what's, do you notice what's missing? There's something missing here. Can you spot what's missing? Randomness lacks symmetry. Do you ever see random things symmetrical? See, the very concept of symmetry implies order. A center line on a drawing implies that there's an architect around. That's how they discovered all kinds of things about the architecture of the Temple Mount, because these things all line up on the center line. It has a profound implication. You notice, randomness lacks periodicity. Every third one doing something, or whatever. Any, there's no periodicity. In fact, that's one of the tests of randomness. If there's any periodicity, it fails the test of randomness. You know what I mean by periodicity? It, it has a cycle. Yeah. Randomness lacks any evidence of design by definition. Because if there's design, that implies it's no longer random. And, uh, and uh, it randomness lacks order of any kind. That's why the scientists, as they search for extraterrestrial life, listen to the noise, the randomness, in the hopes of finding some kind of order. And what they rule out, of course, if it's periodic, periodic, every second or something, it could be generated by some natural phenomenon. So periodicity, they're not looking for that. And uh, But they're looking for any evidence of design. That's right. Random numbers are a typical conjecture. If you're trying to communicate to another alien culture, 
a series of random numbers is one of the ways you get their attention, presumably, because how would you generate that? Well, I got a surprise for you because there's some other, there's a, there is a sequence of numbers that, how many of you have heard of the Fibonacci numbers? There's how many? There's one, two, three, anybody? Okay, it's interesting. I have heard about these since I was a kid. I never took them seriously. And the, uh, and because they are the domain of some pretty strange characters. But uh, back in the 12th century, Leonardo Fibonacci, he was messing around trying to predict rabbit populations. And he discovered a series of numbers that bears his name. And the first, it's one, one, then two. Each number is the sum of the previous two. Third number is two, the next number is three, which is one plus two, then three is two plus, you know, two plus three is five, five plus three is eight, five and eight are 13. 8 and 13 to 21. See, so each number is the sum of the previous two. You follow me? That is the Fibonacci sequence. He first, the mathematician, he first discovered it in the 12th century, but he didn't recognize the real significance. It took several hundred years for people to discover that this sequence appears in nature in some of the strangest places. The ratio of any two adjacent numbers is approximately 1.6. It varies a little bit in the second and decimal place, but it's very close to that. And uh, now, it was several, as I say, several hundred years before the significance of the sequence is recognized. There is a sequence, it shows up in what's sometimes called the golden rectangle. The ancient Greeks seem to discover that there's a rectangle whose proportions are the most pleasing. And uh, they call it the golden rectangle. That's when the longer side is the shorter side, as the shorter size is the sum of the two sides. And that's a rectangle of a certain proportion. It's on the screen right now. That rectangle is called by artists and, and scientists and mathematicians as the golden rectangle. And it has some peculiar characteristics. The ratio of the short side to the long side, the long side is 1.618 of the short side. The point is, if you take a square out of that, you still end up with the golden rectangle. If you take a square out of that, you end up with the golden rectangle. And, and, and so forth. You follow me? It's got some interesting mathematical properties. And on it goes. Okay. It turns out the Parthenon in Greece, the Great Pyramid, the United Nations Building, your credit cards, your playing cards, postcards, the switch on your light switch at home, writing pads, three by five cards, five by eight cards, all of these are based on the gold rectangle, whether you realize it or not, okay? In, in art, Leonardo da Vinci, Van Gogh, Vermeer, John Singer Sargent, Monet, Whistler, Renoir, Many artists recognized that by building their art on that golden rectangle, it gave it vitality moment, movement. And uh, it was a, the dynamic, what they call dynamic symmetry, in contrast to static symmetry. So it implies growth, power, movement, and gives animation and so forth. And the artists have discovered that, and if you're a student of art, you're well acquainted with this. In floral arrangements, we discover the lily has three petals, the yellow violet five, the delphinium eight, the May 13, the Aster 21, Erythium has 34, Helium has 55, Michael Mastrazi has 89. So if you're one of these people, she loves me, she loves me not. If you know the Fibonacci numbers, you've got a chance of winning that one. Okay. All these, of course, are in the, in the Fibonacci sequence. There's a study among scientists called Philotaxis, and that's where you study the arrangement of leaves around the stem of a plant. Visualize taking this plant and taking a cross-section and seeing how the leaves are ordered in the plant. It turns out the elm always has one half the circumference, the beech or the hazel has one third, the apricot and the oak have uh, two every five, the pear, the poplar has three eighths. 
Each one of these, the almond, the pussy willow, pine trees, are always 5 to 21 or 13 to 34. These are all Fibonacci numbers. Now, first of all, they discovered this. That was bizarre because you'll never find a number that's not in the Fibonacci sequence, which is weird. Out of 434 angiosperm and 44 gymnosperms, they all have Fibonacci numbers in their design. And scientists have discovered that that maximizes exposure to sunlight and air without shading or crowding from the other leaves. Because of the nature of the leaves. So this is a result of very skillful design. The design is motivated in part by beauty. And there's a whole other thing I didn't get a chance to do this. You go down, if you're, if you're a diver, you know if you go down 60, 90 feet or so, it's like blue or blue, pretty dark. You go down deep enough where it's dark and turn on a light, things are incredibly colorful. Why? Nobody can see them. Why are they created in the first place? For his pleasure. We have a God that loves beauty. A whole other thing I get into here, as you drive and see scenery, you never see it monotonous. Except you know you want to Kansas. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> as, you, as, I was, as I was driving in here, thinking about this talk, you know, as you go drive mountain road, we drive through a mountain road, and there's all these trees. The trees are random, and yet they're not monotonous. The design of the trees are not predictable. Each one's different, and yet conforms to a motif. It's astonishing how you can look through nature and never see monotony. It's always got the strange variety. So about seeds. The rows of bracts on pine cones, it's 8 or 13, there's two rows. On pineapples, there's three rows, it's 8, 13, and 21. And uh, it turns out there's an optimum divergence angle of 137.5, which is, a, in effect, a fraction of the 360, it's a Fibonacci number. It produces the best packing, and that's why you always see Fibonacci spirals on sunflower. If you look at sunflower, you've got two divergent spirals, they're both Fibonacci numbers. And uh, let's talk about music. How many people play music in here? Okay, you've got five keys that are pentatonic scale, right? You've got eight that are called the diatonic scale. Those are Fibonacci numbers. You put them both together, you've got a chromatic scale, eight and five together. A major six, which is considered, for strange reasons, beautiful, is a ratio of frequencies, that's three to five. Uh, and a minor six is, uh, again, a ratio. These are all Fibonacci numbers, all through music. For some reason, it's it works. Certain chord, you hit two keys, some of them work, some don't. If you're a musician, you know why. But part of the reason is you've got Fibonacci numbers undergirding that whole analysis. But here's the one that blew me away. I was reading up on this, and that's kind of weird. If you look at the revolution of the planets in the solar system, you've got Neptune. Pluto is a problem for a number of people. I'll get into that here. But you've got Neptune, Uranus, Saturn, Jupiter, the, uh, the asteroid belt, Mars, Earth, and Venus, and Mercury. If you adjust the observed orbits just slightly to what I'll call here the theoretical orbits, each one is a Fibonacci ratio to the previous one. And, you say, and uh, Pluto is too, but in an inverse way, because it's 90,000 miles against Neptune 60,000, so that's a three to two thing. But I want to stay out of that for some other reasons. Neptune and Pluto is a whole other issue. Anyway, the point is, what's interesting, these are the same ratios that you find in the elm, the beech, the apricot, the pear, the almond, the elm, the pine, and three different uh, pine uh, numbers. You say, what on earth does the trees have to do with the design of the solar system? Very simple. The same guy did both of them. 
the same guy had a, had an insight of what makes things beautiful. That beauty is an elusive concept on the one hand, and yet we discover there are certain rules even in design that we find. Let's just take one more. If we take the golden rectangle, take a square out of it, take another square out of it, take another square out of it, we have, with the golden rectangle, we can create a spiral, right? Very famous spiral, it turns out. It's the only spiral that does not alter its shape as it grows. It has that math computer mathematical property. And you've all seen one. It was called the chambered nautilus shell. It shows up a lot of other places too, but I mentioned this is just a very crisp example. You find that in the hurricane, spiral seeds, the ram's horn, the tail of the seahorse, fern leaves, the DNA molecule. You'll find it in waves breaking on a beach, tornadoes, galaxies, the tail of the comet around the sun, whirlpools, seed patterns of sunflowers, daisies, and dandelions, the ears of all mammals, and especially the cochlea of the human ear. You have one in your ear that helps convert the sound vibrations into pulses that the ear can transmit to the brain. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. You remember the Da Vinci's famous anatomical sketch of, uh, of man. And you take from the navel to his feet, and you discover it's a golden rectangle related. If you know that distance, you know how tall it is by applying the golden rectangle. And uh, you can do that from, uh, from his navel to his chin. You'll find the length of his face, from his chin to his lips, the no tip to the nose to the pupils, uh, pupils to the top of his head, and so forth. All these yield distances of various parts. You discover the golden relationships are all through his basic design. And since man is in the image of God, in some senses, it's not surprising to find out he apparently has what we understand to be mathematically harmonious proportions. And we find it all through nature, whether you're talking about seeds in a plant or the orbits of the planet. The, the summary of all this is if you penetrate into nature, wherever the scientist or inquirer might choose to look, you'll discover that there's been thought that's been there ahead of you. The idea of ascribing it to randomness it's not only illogical and wrong, it's insulting. It's probably the ultimate insult you can give the Creator, and that's why it's so interesting to me to discover that your attitude about the creation is what's going to judge you at the throne of judgment. Romans 1 hammers that, and all through the Scripture you find that. Well, as you talk, talk about man, we supposed to talk about all these monkey men for us. You've heard about the Heidelberg man? You see that still in children's textbooks? It was built entirely from a jawbone that was found in 1907. Nebraska man in 1922, Henry Osborne, created the whole conscious man from one tooth that he found. The tooth was later discovered to be of an extinct pig. Piltown man, 1912, one of the most famous hoaxes in history, Charles Dawson, made the whole thing from the jawbone of a modern ape. But here's the key point. It was not a, a you know, a overzealousness or accidental insight. It was a deliberate fraud. In 1953, it was definitely proven. The jawbone was filed and treated with iron salts to look old and so forth. I know of no field of science that is more replete with deliberate frauds than the field of paleontology or anthropology, however you want to label this field of inquiry. Pekin Man, 1921, that evidence disappeared. It also was apparently an outright fraud. The Neanderthal Man, found in a cave in the Neander Valley near Dusseldorf. The International Congress of Zoology in 1958 decided that it was an old man suffering from arthritis. Java Man, 1922, all made from an 1891 skull cap, 50-foot femur, a thigh bone that was found some feet away. 
The evidence was concealed. The teeth were actually an orangutan. This again was one of these frauds. The main point is in 120 years of searching, no intermediate stages have been found. The so-called missing link has been a, a fool there. Let's talk about man a little bit. And, uh, you know, this may sound strange, and I realize I run great risks of being misunderstood or misquoted here. But I have to tell you something kind of, that just, it's just true. That whenever I eat, and whenever I go to the bathroom, I find myself stunned as I realize how complex our digestive system is. How whatever I eat, whatever I happen to eat, the body knows what it needs and passes the rest through. And it is so, it knows how much it needs. And the whole complexity of the world in which we live and what we eat, the way our body takes that in and deals with it all, and all the various organs that correct the errors, the excesses, gets rid of the sugars or the, you know, the liver, all that, the, the, the digestive system. When I first started, I was going to try to do a diagram, and it would have taken us an hour just to explain a little bit. I just scratched the surface. Um, the circulatory system, your blood vessels, the way your blood responds to emergencies is astonishing. The way it fights invaders and so on. Your respiratory system, we talked a little bit about the giraffe, the humans is, is, has its own complications. Your sensory systems, the eye, compare your eye to the most sophisticated digital camera you can buy. It's vastly more sophisticated. Uh, the ears, the uh, proprioceptive system, your ability to keep balance, know where you are with your eyes closed. All these things are not pretty. Your immune system, boy, one thing we're learning today is that scientists don't understand our immune system. The fact that you can have a retrovirus that changes the master record in the database of your cell. Boy, that, that's, that's... And the nervous system. Let's just take one of these and talk about it a little bit. I'll pick the nervous system. We have our brain, right? And we can go through all the different things they think they know about it, but as you start getting into that, they give you fancy words for things they don't really understand in the first place. Because by the time you go through the brain, you discover a great deal of it deals with the glands that are right under the, the, uh, the, uh, the brain proper. The pituitary gland is the master gland of them all. The growth hormones, the thyroid-stimulating hormones, the antidiuretic, there's just a whole family of these things where it is monitoring and controlling your whole body processes from a central control. And you start looking at the autotomic uh, nervous system. It's, you know, there's a, there is a uh, sympathetic version, and that's the one that activates in times of stress, times of emergency, it does all kinds of things. It's, it's amazing how it integrates all the way through. And uh, the parasympathetic division, which controls the maintenance, the normal routine functions. And what it's, uh, uh, each element in your body has both roles. And uh, it's interesting, that's why you'll discover that we don't think of a person's actions as emanating from his head. We say, so-and-so sure has guts, doesn't he? You see? Oh, does he have heart for the job? See, we find ourselves drawing on idioms. We don't mean literally the heart that pumps the blood. It's our way of capturing his volition, not even presuming that it's confined to this organ that happens to be in our head, per se. Because we somehow just know from our experience that our real responses and actions affect our whole body. That's why you get ulcers when you're under stress. Your brain doesn't get a problem. You get an ulcer, right? Whatever. And, and uh, so we can go through all of that. But you, the reason I want to bring this in, see, the human brain 
They estimate it has about 10 to the 10th nerve cells. Now, you've been enough with me, these large numbers know that we have no idea what 10 to the 10th means. Um, each one of these has somewhere between 10 to the 4th and 10 to the 5th connecting fibers. So we're suddenly dealing with a very large net. That's one reason they don't understand how the brain works, because we don't understand super, we know that large networks operate differently than smallness. So if you have this, if you have 10 to the 5th connecting fibers, 10 to the 10th nerve cells, you've got about 10 to the 15th connections in your brain. Well, what does that mean? What's 10 to the 15th connections mean? Well, imagine you had a tree with, every tree you could find had 50,000 leaves on it. That's probably a very high estimate, okay? And let's assume you had 10,000 trees every square mile. Every tree has 50,000 leaves. You've got 10,000 per square mile. You would need 2 million square miles of these, a forest the size of the United States, to get the equivalent connections in your brain. So uh, I knew you'd get a kick out of that. I think it's amazing, isn't it, that these complexities and all the things that, and the patterns that you see, how God almost puts his little stamp of information that I'm here, I'm here over here in nature, I'm here in the, the world of the plants, I'm here in the world of the stars, I'm here in you. And you see these patterns just as, as a little watermark you know, that suggests that we're created. We are created. And God did create us and gave us a purpose. And that purpose was very great. We'll talk more about that purpose too when we get to talking about the Garden of Eden. But uh, it is amazing how we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And not only us, but certainly the animals as well. So perhaps you have a, a 